So glad to be here. Thank you uh, for your prayers and encouragement. It's surreal. Uh, like, for example, when you pray every week and Wednesday night, your prayer list, it's weird when you see your own name on that prayer list. It gives you a whole new perspective, uh, but it also gives you a deep appreciation for this church and the way you gather around folks that are hurting. And um, Thank you. I love our church, and I'm just so, so uh, grateful. It was not lost on me that our opening song today, Brandon, was, He Lives. And I thought... Uh, <laughs> And I was laughing, but, but that's better. At the 8 a.m., you can't make this up, the 8 a.m., which was planned, of course, long ago, the special choir song was, you can bury the workman, the work will go on. I thought, that seems a little on the nose. Uh, but anyway, if you're uh, just joining us, welcome. If you're not from here, uh, I, I had to quarantine out the last couple days I'm, uh, for the COVID, doing well. And um, I, of course, I'd, I'd been fully vaccinated and everything, and the doctors told me that the vaccine was 94% effective, but... Mom always said I was an overachiever, and so I was able to, so anyway, uh, grateful, uh, so, so grateful to be back, and grateful to be beginning a brand new series. You're here on a great Sunday, and did you know, if you're here on the opening Sunday of a new series, you are obligated for every Sunday uh, to complete that series. Congratulations. The series I'm calling True Grit. True Grit. It's a series on the book of Daniel. True Grit is a nod, if there's some John Wayne fans, uh, sort of an old, about courage, toughness. I, yeah, I don't know if you ever read, uh, and, and listen, I'm fired up. This is a, it's going to be a long sermon. I've got two weeks here stored up. I don't know if you ever read an article or you see something and you're like, yes, yes, that, that's what I'm feeling, or that's what I'm trying to say. Alistair Begg wrote an article about what it's like to be a Christian in 2021 America. Now think about it. Uh, Americans have experienced a privileged status in many ways as Christians in this country. And he wrote an article as, as Christians are going, well, that, that feels like it's changing. It feels like, it feels like, like there's antagonism toward Christian beliefs right now in our country. What's going on? And the title of his article is, Welcome to Exile. It's going to be okay. And I love this. He writes, uh, when I, when I, and I, part of why I resonate is I sang this, this song too. He says, when I was a child, I sang a song, and I don't think it made a lot of sense to me when I was singing it. He sang a little song in church. I sang it too. It goes like this. Maybe some of you know it. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The reason for many years, Christians in America, that song has fallen flat. Why? Because this world feels very much like our home. We feel very comfortable here. We're not in some uh, 1040 window country where Christians are being persecuted and all our treasures are laid up beyond our... No, this world feels very much our home. And my treasures are laid up right here in that garage. <laughs> They're not laid up beyond the blue, you know. Now, now, Christians are beginning to feel the weight of what we've always known is true, that this world is not our home. So more and more, get ready. You're going to feel more and more in 2021 America. You're going to feel more and more. I mean, if you wake up and you go, what happened to this country? What's going on? If you feel that way, welcome to exile. It's going to be okay. You're not the first followers of God to try to figure out how do you live faithfully as a Christian in a world that seems like it's lost its mind. You're not the first person to deal with that. 
In fact, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And the preeminent example of how to live in exile is literally a book given to God's people on how to live in exile. It's the book of Daniel. Daniel and his three friends, and by all accounts, uh, teenagers, high schoolers, show us true grit, how to live in exile. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 1, and let's get right to it. Today's outline, God's faithfulness, Satan's strategy, and a high schooler's grit. God's faithfulness, Satan's strategy, and a high schooler's grit. God's faithfulness, verses 1 and 2. Check it out. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, right here in the first two verses of Daniel, you get, I love what Dale Ralph Davis says, you get the history of what happened, the theology of what happened, and the media's take on what happened. I love that. The history of what happened, the theology of what happened, and the media's version. The history of what happened is simply verse 1. Uh, in, the, uh, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Uh, everybody remember your Bible history? Uh, if not, I can catch up to speed. 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, Isaiah the prophet prophesied that this is going to happen. And then sure enough, right around 500 years before Jesus, that's what happened. Everybody thought Assyria was the big bad power in the ancient Near East, but Babylon came up and knocked out the Assyrians. And Babylon began expanding their empire, and they came all the way to the Holy Land, the Promised Land, to Jerusalem. And they besieged it, siege warfare. Remember, not active warfare. You just starve them out, starve them out, took them over, and that's what happened. That's the history of what happened. And sure enough, uh, 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 the biblical history and, and, and that, that teaches us. Okay, that's the history of what happened. Here's the media's version, though. The media's version of what happened is the second half of verse 2. And Nebuchadnezzar brought the vessels of the house of God to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Every word there is shots fired against Yahweh. You hear it? You see it? You see the arrogance? Big, bad Nebuchadnezzar can do whatever he wants to little old Yahweh and his people. See, because Nebuchadnezzar is saying, you see the symbolism. I'm going to take the holy things that were devoted to Yahweh God, and I'm going to put them in the, in the temple to my God, because apparently Yahweh, your God, can't save your people. Apparently, see, Yahweh, you uh, have forgotten your people. Apparently, there's no God in Israel, and apparently we can do whatever we want, because I'm big, bad Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar did this, and Nebuchadnezzar did that. That's the media's version, right? You feel that? You, you look around, it's easy to get discouraged. This is a theme, by the way, that's going to run through the whole book of Daniel. Who is really in control? What God can really deliver? And that is why it's so important. If we're going to live faithfully in exile to know the faithfulness of God, because it's easy to look around in exile and go, well, maybe, maybe, maybe all this stuff isn't true. Maybe, maybe God can't deliver. Maybe God's not in control. You look at all the evil in the world. You look at all the other world religions. You think, well, maybe they are, maybe they are mostly the same. Who's to say that we've got it all, uh, the, the, the one way to God the Father? And you, and you look around, you start questioning that in spite of all that. And that's, what, that, that's it. I mean, the media's looking around going, if God is so good, why is there so much trouble in the world? And uh, all these shots fired against the faithfulness of God. So that's the history of what happened, the media's version. And here's what really happened. Look at the first part of verse 2. Make no mistake, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, 
into his hand. There it is. What does this show us? It shows us that while the emperors of the world think they're ruling, God is actually overruling. It's the Lord that gave Jehoiakim. And that's something that Christians have to realize. Whatever we see happening, you got to understand there is a God. He is on the throne and God always does what he says he's going to do. He said in Deuteronomy 29 that if you, if you break covenant with me, I'm going to use pagan nations to judge you. He says in Isaiah, he prophesies, Babylon's going to take you away. So there's a ruler, but there's an overruler. Uh, do you remember, um, do you remember uh, that, uh, that, that fateful scene during Holy Week, uh, Passion Week? Can you picture it out, out of the scriptures in your mind's eye? Remember when Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate? And Pilate can't figure out what to do with Jesus. Because in a way, from Pilate's perspective, he's actually trying to let Jesus off the hook. He's trying to help him out. And Jesus won't defend himself. He won't, he won't say, any, say the right words. And, and you know, he, he could put all this behind us. And, and Pilate gets so frustrated with Jesus. Do you remember this? When finally, Pilate looks at Jesus and says, you're not going to answer me? He says, don't you know that I have the authority of life or death over you? <laughs> remember what Jesus says? You would have exactly no authority. The only authority you have is what my father lets you have. Remember that? See, when it looks like Nebuchadnezzar is ruling, remember, Nebuchadnezzar is overruling. Do you, do you remember the Apostle Paul? When Caesar threw the Apostle Paul in jail, the Apostle Paul never once in Scripture called himself a prisoner of Caesar, did he? No, he, he called himself a prisoner of the Lord. See, because Caesar thinks he's the one who has me here in prison. But I don't serve Caesar. I serve Caesar's boss. And it's God Almighty who wants me in this prison. So if he wants me in this prison, then I'm going to be in this prison. And it's going to result in the furtherance of the gospel because I'm a prisoner of the Lord. When it looks like there are rulers, listen, there are over ruler. One, his name is God. And the true God of the universe is always going to do what he says he's going to do. You can trust his promises. If he says he's going to get you safely home, he's going to get you safely home. God is faithful. You've got to get that straight if you're going to live successfully in exile. The faithfulness of God. Got it? Then we can move on to the strategy of Satan. From the faithfulness of God, notice Satan's strategy. Evil, it is a, oh, it's a wicked and brilliant strategy. And let me just say, evil is not stupid. In fact, sometimes the more intelligent, the more cunning, and the more wicked uh, the, the, the plan, right? Someone who's truly uh, sort of an evil genius. And Satan's plan, it, it, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, if he's going to expand this pagan empire, you've got to admit his, his strategy for doing so is brilliant. Look at verse 3. Then the king commanded, so this is Nebuchadnezzar, he tells Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Uh, Chaldeans would have been Babylonian culture and their uh, language. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Now you see the brilliance of the scheme, right? Nebuchadnezzar wants to expand this massive empire. 
Well, instead of just scorched earth, instead of just go in and kill them all, right, with brute force, what good is a kingdom if all your subjects are dead? So don't do that. And, and besides, your empire is expanding so quickly, you don't have... Come on, Nebuchadnezzar, you're way over here in Babylon. You want to enjoy your hanging gardens and your palace. You don't, the last thing you want to be is way on the outskirts out here in Jerusalem, constantly squashing rebellions. Not just Jerusalem, but everywhere. You don't have time for all that. So a brute force is not going to... That's not the way to expand your empire. Besides, everybody knows, you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. So instead of brute force go in and just mow everybody down and oh sure if they put up real resistance we've got things like fiery furnace we'll see in a couple chapters we've got you know ship them off to the gulag or or kill them you know if there's real rebellion but no 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 there's a much better way much better way instead why not begin a program of indoctrination take the best and brightest of this generation and unless they really put up a fight, no, 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 the best would be to take them into Babylon, let them lose their identity as Israelites and become utterly Babylonian. If we can get enough people, let's take a few of them and get them into Babylon and then, and this is very important, let's get Babylon into them. Get them utterly worldly. Get them with no distinct identity as the people of God anymore. And if enough generations do that, if we can indoctrinate enough generations, then the name of Yahweh, the name of the one true God will be forgotten forever. And they'll be truly Babylonian. It is a satanic program. And like all, it is designed to do four things. Isolate, indoctrinate, that means brainwash, and then spoil. Uh, soothe, comfort, placate, mollify, pacify. Isolate, indoctrinate, spoil, and confuse. Isolate. Look at verse 3. The, the first step is isolation. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. Get these teenagers away from their family, away from their home church, the home synagogue, away from the word of God, away from all the influences they have grown up with. And the first thing we want to do is isolate them. Notice that. Isolation, haven't you found? Isolation is often a key first step in the enemy's temptation of you, isn't it? If he can get you alone. Uh, every business traveler knows this. Right? Ah, I'm out here on the road. Nobody, nobody really knows me. Complete accountability. It's not like I'm back home where everybody knows what I'm doing. I, I guess I can get away with anything here. I'm out on the road. I'm all by myself. Business travels. No. Temptation goes up. Why? They're all alone. COVID has taught us about the emotional and uh, uh, spiritual toll it's taken. Why? Humans weren't designed to be isolated. Those of you heading off to college... To our college students, we have many in this room right now. Uh, this is a great danger, and this is something that, that you're, this is why your parents are, are praying for you in this way. There is a sort of, there is, there is possible you, to sort of isolate yourself from God's people when you're at college. So it's like, well, I got my calm in life, and when I'm there, of course, I have to go to church, you know. Uh, but then I got, also got my on-campus life. It's like I got two versions of myself. What's happening? Well, the enemy's isolating you. Get you alone. Get you by yourself. See, and once isolated, that paves the way for the next step, indoctrination. There's isolation, then comes indoctrination. Look at verse 4. Can you imagine? 
Youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. He says to Ashpenaz, and this is genius, he says, hey, I want you to go over there to Jerusalem and do a little research, will you, Ashpenaz? I want you to go look up some ACT scores. Go give me some grade point average. Yeah, you know, I want you to go over there and I want you to find out which one of these students, uh, who's in the beta club. And uh, uh, who, who give, give me one, give, give me a, like a three sport athlete. You know what I mean? Who plays varsity? Look at, I love this verse. And for heaven's sake, no zits. I don't want, <laughs> I don't want any time, man. Any, no, no pimples. <laughs> so go get a, in other words, get good families, right? Good families. Find, find, those, find those families and find those teenagers. And here's what I want you to do. Yeah, what are we going to do? I mean, because th- th- those are powerful people, right? I mean, th- those, are, those are world changers. Those are influencers, right? What are we going to do? We're going to kick their door down? They've already been in siege warfare. They're starving to death. They're going to be weak as lambs. Kick the door down? Rough them up? Not exactly. Instead, I want you to go in there. And can you imagine these parents? They got these, uh, they got these uh, 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 high school uh, sophomores, and they're upstairs in, in the room, and everybody's worried. And you hear about the Babylonians. We're under siege warfare, and we're all having to, to get by on these meager rations every day, and we're worried about starvation. You got all this stress, and suddenly you hear the Babylonians are marching through town. They're coming, and they get closer to your neighborhood and closer, and, and, and the word's already gotten out. Because you know how it is in a small town when you're under siege? And everybody's all talking, and, and, and they, 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 they're coming for our kids. They're coming for high schoolers. And, then, and, 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 and there, you, you know, and, and, and they're coming. They're going to bang down the door. They're going to kill us. They're going to torture us. And when they come to the door, instead of banging it down, what happens? They walk in like they're recruiting for an SEC football team. And they come in just polite as can be. Why, yes, I will have some tea. Well, you don't have any tea. You're under siege. I have whatever you have, you know. And they sit down and they pull out the full color brochures of Babylon. And they call that young man down and they say, you know, we see real promise in you. Why would you want to stick around this one horse town? Literally siege warfare. They were down to the last horse. They were about to eat him. Come with me. And uh, uh, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna, we're gonna treat you right. And, and here, here's what you're going to do. You, you, you see these brochures? Now, Mom, you're going to love this. This is the finest prep school in all of Babylon. And we're going to teach you some things. Now, notice, you're going to, all, look at all this is about wisdom. It's flattery, but it's also wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, access to the upper echelons of academia, and the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now, listen, they're telling them, you know, you get a lot of the students that come through our program, the next step's the NFL. The next step is uh, you'll have access to the best jobs in all the kingdom. And listen, think about this for a second. You will come and you will finally learn. I know what they've taught you here at Sunday school. But you'll finally learn the truth. You'll learn the literature and language of the Chaldeans. In other words, what you'll learn is your myth about, what's the name of your God again? Yahweh? Yeah, his vessels are in our temple. So what you'll learn is that your little myth, that cute story about how your one God created everything and he's the only way to have access, you'll learn that that is one myth among many myths. And you will learn eventually to see as a true sophisticated Babylonian, you'll have all the wealth the world could offer, you'll have all the worldly wisdom, and you will be utterly Babylonian. 
Now, doesn't that sound nice? If you're not following me here, if you're not tracking my point, parents, grandparents, listen to me carefully what I'm saying. The world is perfectly happy to disciple your child. They would love nothing more. And if you're not taking active, intentional steps, Christian education, I'm talking about Sunday school, I'm talking about first kids, I'm talking about youth group, I'm talking about every time the doors open, all that stuff, you got to understand, you're, the current is, is, is fast moving. The world is happy to indoctrinate your child, to disciple your child. It's part of worldly process. Now, th- this hit home for me in a real personal way. Uh, when uh, our, our firstborn, when Katie was uh, in New York, she wasn't even in kindergarten yet. It was just pre-K. It was just like uh, we sent her to this uh, preschool. And um, I don't know why this was such a trigger for me. I mean, even to this day, Jackie laughs. Like, of all things, like, that was the thing where I was, like, lying in the sand and I just lost my mind. She's like, I mean, you're literally walking your kid past all this graffiti and all this filth and all this. I'm like, eh, none of that bothered me. It was this. It was this one thing, and so it, uh, this, it, and to this day, I get chills even thinking about it. Katie comes home from preschool, and she wants to sing a little song that they taught her in preschool. And I was like, oh, okay, I'd love to hear it. And she sings, and I quote, this is what they taught me. We've got the whole world in our hands. I said, sweetheart, can can you play that back to me? I don't think I heard that right. Sing that back to me? Yeah, sure. We've got the whole world in our hands. I said, honey. (laughs) Listen to me carefully. If If you've ever heard one thing that your father wants to impart to you, it's not true. He's got the whole world in his hands. And I remember she said, no, Dad, that's not it. I was like, I don't, I, I wasn't mad at her. It's not her fault. But that's, that's when it occurred to me. Like, indoctrination. And I think it was, they were teaching them something about Earth Day. Like, we've got the whole world. Take care. Yeah, yeah, we should take care of the planet. By the way, we should take care of the planet. Fine. But what I, what I heard was, who's really in control? And a secular worldview would say, uh, we've got the whole world in our hand. And a Christian would say, he's got the whole world in his hands. Those couldn't be more diametrically opposed. And that scared me more than all the graffiti and all the filth and all the... Uh, it was that, that Babylon was getting. So what did we do? We immediately pulled her out of school. We, st- we started a commune. And we, uh, we all became hippies. And, you know, <laughs> of course not. But I wouldn't fault you for thinking that. What do we do? That's the day we realized... We need a guide. We need Daniel. We need to figure out how are we going to live as exiles? How am I going to be a Christian teacher in a, uh, 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 in a public school setting? How am I going to be salt and light as a student in a university campus? How at my work where everybody seems to do what you got to do to get ahead, how am I going to be salt and light? How am I going to live in exile? And that's what I realized as a pastor. I have to train people how to live as a stranger, an exile, an alien, to teach people this world is not your home. The world's going to be what the world's going to be, right? The world's going to do what the world's going to do. Our job is to bear faithful witness. Now, not everybody's brainwashed. Not everybody's convinced. 
And I imagine these boys are sitting there going, I don't know, that doesn't sound right. Literature and language of the Chaldeans. I mean, I, I definitely want to learn that stuff, but I also want to be faithful to Yahweh God. And the parents are going, I don't know, so they bring out the big guns. Now, if you're the recruiter and you're trying to get these boys, right, you, you bring out the big guns. It, uh, if you have ever raised a teenage boy or you have been a teenage boy, you will understand the next verse. I don't know, I'm not convinced. So finally, verse 5. Well, let me tell you about the food. Sold. <laughs> the king assigned him a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They would be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were stand before the king. Now, that hits all teenage boys, but imagine these boys. What's been happening for the past months or years? Siege warfare. They're starving to death. So he tells them, now you're going to go from starving to death to feasting literally like a king. Ah, you see that? Isolation, indoctrination, then they spoil you. The tactic of the enemy is not direct terror or frontal assault, but just spoil Christians. High living easily blunts the sharp edge of conviction. Listen to this quote from Sinclair Ferguson. It was convicting to me. Somebody in Nebuchadnezzar's palace knew enough about the human heart to know that most men have their price. And that good times, comfort, self-esteem, and a position in society are usually a sufficient bid for a soul. He's saying he just spoil them, make them comfortable. I, I think that explains why some Christians would actually flourish in an environment like being under Pharaoh, but uh, taste the freedom and the wealth of being an American Christian and suddenly we're weak as water because this world is too much with us. So isolate, indoctrinate, spoil, and finally confuse. Confuse them about their identity. Every time their name is called, I want them to forget who they are. Look at verse 7. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Scholars don't know exactly what these names mean, but uh, by all accounts, there's something to do with pagan gods. So Daniel, which means God is my judge, gets renamed Belteshazzar, uh, a servant of Baal. Hananiah, the Lord is gracious, becomes Shadrach, something to do with inspired by the sun god. Mishael, he calls Meshach. Mishael, who is what God is, becomes Meshach, who is what the moon god is. And Azariah, which is the Lord helps, become uh, Abednego, servant of Nebo. The point is pretty clear. Over time, he wants these young men to forget who they are. The final step in the enemy's plan is always, Christian, always, listen to me, Christian, it's always to give you a name that is not your name. To give you a label that is not who you are. And before you think I would never fall for that, some of you are already in that clutches of the enemy right now in that way. It's an act of faith to wake up in the morning and go, I'm a child of God. I, I have a good father. He loves me. And in spite of all appearances, he is my Lord. He is my judge. He is my God. That's an act of faith. And the minute you live into the reality, the minute you allow the world, the flesh, and the devil to label you, you see they've already won that great victory over you. It's like you've locked yourself in a prison with no hope for parole. You say stuff like, well, figures, figures, I messed that up. You know, I, I'll never get that right. Well, whose label are you living under? Well, you know, I, I'm just lazy. Well, that's a dead end. If you're lazy, what hope do you have to ever change? You're lazy. That's who you are. That's it, right? Well, figures, I never really overcome that temptation. Well, never's a strong word. Is there no hope for a miracle? Does it, is there not authority in one word from Jesus? 
The enemy will always try to give you a label, always try to give you a name that's not your name. That's why indoctrination is real. You've got to have the mind of Christ. You've got to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's why in Romans 8, Paul's saying there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So, God's faithfulness, Satan's strategy of isolation, indoctrination, spoiling, and confusion. And finally, a high schooler's grit. Let's look at the rest of the story. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved, another translation says he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now that is true grit. We'll come back to that. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Okay? Uh, I, I, I don't want to defile myself with the king's food. Now verse 9 makes us think he's going to get a good answer. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. It's interesting, verse 9 and 10 don't actually uh, in our minds go together because verse 9 makes it sound like the chief is going to say, okay, great, let's figure something out. He doesn't do that. Verse 10, the chief of the eunuchs says, listen, I'm, uh, I'm in a tight spot with that one. <laughs> now, I think it pained him to say this because he liked Daniel, he had favor, but he's saying, look, 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 here's how this works. My boss is Nebuchadnezzar, like crazy, psychotic, sociopathic, fiery furnace, crazy Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, he, he gave me one job, and it's to feed you guys. And if I don't, if I just give you like, you know, uh, veggies and water instead of the rich, calorically dense food of the king, then we come a few weeks from now and you're all anemic. He's going to want to know why is this the case? And my head's on the chopping block. He literally says that you would endanger my head with the king. Now, it's a very interesting response. He doesn't actually say no. <laughs> One commentator pointed out, we can't see the winks and nods of verse 10. <laughs> because what happens next, he's able, it's, it's almost like he's saying, ooh, I wish I could help you. I personally can't help you. But uh, if you'll go down a step in the chain of command, and that's what Daniel does. Look at the next verse. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. Very smart. Daniel goes down a notch in the chain of command. Now who is this, who is this steward? Well, the steward is basically the lunchroom monitor. And uh, uh, I doubt that this lunchroom monitor ever got to taste the king's steak or the finest wine from the king's cellar. Maybe once or twice in his life he got to taste such delicacies. But can you imagine this guy? Every day he has to take the, the finest steak and, and uh, uh, highest quality wine and give it to these Israelites while he himself goes and eats a salad. And you know the worst part is? He had to be the one to serve it. So it's not, it's not only did he never get to taste these things, but he had to watch every day. He had to salivate over it. And so it, when Daniel comes to him and says, uh, it doesn't take him long to do the math. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me see if I understand you correctly. You want me not to give you your choice uh, food and the king's wine. And instead, you want the veggies and water that I have to drink. Well, I guess I could work out something. I could give you the veggies and water. But if I do, then what's going to happen to all that steak? And Oh, I know where that could go, right? Suddenly it dawns on him. And he says, you know, I think, I think we can work something out here. And so they privately do a little test run. And you know the rest of the story. 
it works. Verse 15, at the end of 10 days, it was seen they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. Makes me wonder if they deep fried those veggies in (laughs) some Crisco. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And as for the end of the story, of course, God grants them favor. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. I wonder if that's just a little foreshadowing that earthly kings come and go, but the man of God remains. So you see, he he advanced in all this wisdom and understanding. It's not like he said, well, then forget it. You know, I don't want any part of this. He learned the literature and he knew all that stuff, but he was still faithful to God. I want to close with very practical application. Because you may hear all this and go, okay, great for Daniel. Daniel had true grit. Daniel had courage. That's great. I want you to look at this story, and I want you to look at Daniel's response, and I want you to walk out of here, and I can do them very quickly. I want to give you three application points that you can begin to put into place into your life, like immediately, like starting today. Straight out of the book of Daniel, straight into your life as a Christian in 2021, trying to figure out how to live in exile. Three application points. I can do them quick, and you can put them into place immediately. Number one, resolve. Resolve. Daniel resolved. He purposed in his heart. Look at verse eight. But Daniel resolved. The word resolved means to decide, watch this, ahead of time. Resolve means to pre-decide. Now some of you right now in this church service on Sunday morning, August 15th, you need to pre-decide some stuff. You've got decisions that you know, you've got some decisions, you've got some things, or you need to affirm some resolutions you've made. You just need to clear up some decisions. You know, the old timers used to say, you need to do business with God. I like that. This morning, you need to do business with God. There's a decision and you kind of know what's right, you kind of don't. You need to settle that matter and decide. But here's the catch. You need to pre-decide. Do it now. Do it now while you're in church, while you're thinking clearly. Don't wait until the moment of great temptation. Result, that's the point. He purposed in his heart. Daniel didn't wait until he sat right in front of that filet mignon. What should I do? Oh, carrots. He pre, or if you're a vegetarian, smelled the carrots and looked at the meat. You're right, it doesn't work. The point is, he decided ahead of time. Now, what do you need to pre-decide about? When I was a boy growing up in church in western Kentucky, I had a Sunday school teacher or maybe an RA leader. By the way, those of you who work with children, uh, don't ever underestimate the legacy you will have in this person's life. I still remember this. And this fella, his big thing, uh, we were about 11 or 12 years old. And his big thing, and I'm not here to make a religion out of it. It's not, it's not a moral issue. I don't care. It, it was his thing. He did not want any of us boys to smoke cigarettes. We were not going to smoke cigarettes. That was his big thing. And, uh, and so he gathers us all. And of course, in West Kentucky, he was, he was fighting upstream battle there. But, he, but he, uh, he sat us down and he said, uh, boys, you're going to make a decision. Every single one of you is going to make a decision about whether or not to smoke these coffin nails. Every one of you is going to make a decision about cigarettes. He said, this is all I'm asking you. If everybody agree we're going to make a decision? I, was like, oh, I guess, I guess. He said, here's all I'm asking you. 
let's make that decision right now, right here. Let's just decide now. That's just one less thing you'll have to worry about. You can just check that off. Pulls out a pack of cigarettes. He's like, so if you're going to say yes, just go ahead and say yes right now. We're like, yeah, right. Smoke in church. This is a trick. We're going to die. You know, God's going to send a lightning bolt. Like, holds it out there. He said, oh, okay, no takers. Well, then if the answer is no, then let's just decide no. Either way, I want a clear line in the sand, firm decision. But there's no need to wait to decide on the enemy's terms if we can just decide right here, right now on our terms. Well, of course, we all said no. Uh, he said, good. Well, then that's one, that's one less thing. Put the cigs back in. Okay, that's one less thing. We can go on with the lesson. You know, I've never forgotten that. Again, I'm not making a religion out of it. I, I don't, your moral stance on cigarettes. That, uh, but wasn't there some wisdom in what that man was teaching those boys? What he was saying is, isn't it wiser to decide what you're going to do about this now when you're thinking straight than at a Friday night at a, after the football game when all the boys are back there passing around cigarettes and you're going to look like an idiot if you don't take one? Then it's really hard to make a decision. Why not just decide right now? There's some wisdom in that, isn't there? He was saying, be resolved, be purposed. Young people, why not resolve right now what your sexual ethic is going to be? Will you have a sexual ethic that aligns with the Bible or not? Why not decide that now rather than just sort of hope that one day you'll maybe make the decision? Why not make pre-decide on some things? Resolve in your heart. Parents, you need to resolve in your heart right now what will be your child's use of technology. Don't wait until Christmas to decide whether or not to get them a smartphone. It's too late. You can't fight that battle. <laughs> You got to decide ahead of time. And there's no reason not to. Pre decide. No wishy washy. Did you know 99% commitment is very difficult, but 100% commitment is actually easier? It's decided. My kids know when they'll get a smartphone. There's no begging, there's no crying. They know it's been decided. Nothing on earth could change my mind. But everybody, eh. But what about me? Why? It's been purposed in my heart. You don't get a smartphone until you're 40. And that's, oh, no, no, just, just jokes, sort of. But you see what I mean. What are you doing? You're purposing in your heart. You know, something that strikes me as a boy growing up, you know what my parents, looking back, I didn't think about it at the time. Do you know what looking back, do you know what they purposed in their heart? Do you know what they, Daniel 1.8, resolved? And I, I didn't even think about it because it was, but they had sometimes, somewhere along the line, they purposed that if, it is Sunday. We go to church. It is laughable to think about waking up as a boy in the Richter household on a Sunday and asking, so like, what do you guys think? <laughs> we go, I'm just kidding. I, I decided not to. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> What do you guys, what do you guys think? We're going we're gonna to roll over to church, right? It's a joke. The question doesn't even make sense. Why? Is it Sunday? Yeah. Are you breathing? Yeah. Then we're going to church. What's my point? Pre-decide, resolve. Some of you, that just needs to be a resolution. There's no more. 99% commitment is hard. But 100% commitment is, if it's Sunday, we're there. You see how that's actually easier. I have just taken away the stress of deciding 
for the next 52 Sundays of your life, haven't I? 100% commitment. Pre-decide. Resolve. That you can put that into place right now, this morning, today. And if we stop there, if the only application was dare to be a Daniel, resolve in your heart, then I think um, uh, that could make us pretty dogmatic. So I want to follow that with resolve, pre-decide. Daniel, Daniel resolved in his heart, but watch this. But he was gracious in his manner. Ah, he resolved in his heart, but he was gracious in his manner. So the first thing is resolve, but the second is be gracious. Daniel didn't come in like a bull in a china shop and, and knock everything down. And he, he realized his main struggle of his life was not how to make the culture more Christian. The main struggle of his life was how the follower of Christ should live in the midst of a hostile culture. So much time and energy is wasted on trying to get the world to think and act Christianly. The world is going to think and act like the world. So to, 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 to try to force America your way or to force it in a Christian way, our, our job's not to get all bent out of shape. It's to bear faithful witness as an exile. Daniel didn't barge in and demand his rights. He was, wasn't he very sensitive to the tight spot the chief of the eunuchs was in? And he didn't, and he wasn't trying to force it. So much of, sometimes what I see on social media, Christians think they're coming across as full of conviction, when in fact they're just coming across as full of themselves. There's no need for that. There's no need for anything but graciousness. So, resolved in conviction, but gracious, gracious. And finally, you've got to do something. So you've got to be resolved, be gracious, and you've got to have some reminder of daily dependence. You've got to be be dependent. You You need to put into your life some... Daniel was relentless in a daily discipline of dependence on God. What do I mean by that? He knew he needed a consistent reminder would be unco... That was the issue with no problem. So it can't be that. Uh, some would say successful. There is ain't is a daily reminder that our lives belong to God. Every meal was a message. Taste the. Most of us want to know what, is it come. And that's why it's not such an easy answer to answer. What what films should we watch? What time should you know uh, come home at night? What, how, how big a mortgage should you take? How expensive a car should you drive? I mean, there there has to be these this, this restraint put in place. Yes, there are Christians that could live nicer than they live, but they they choose to live at a lesser means so that they have more generosity, so that they have more to give. Yes, but also so they can put some guards on their heart. I think a daily quiet time is a great answer of this. I think if it's Sunday, you're in church. Really, you're doing it right here, right now. You're here. You're gathering with God's people. You're celebrating your true identity. We're reminded in both song and in preached word of who we are and who God is. That's an example of resolving in your heart. I think a daily quiet time, fasting, feasting, these daily reminders. Brandon's going to come and lead us in a time of uh, response and as I said, I, I, I think these uh, applications you can put into practice today, resolve in your heart, be gracious in your manner, and get some sort of daily dependence. It could be something as simple as before every meal, you make sure that you say thanks to God. Because what you're saying, Daniel was saying, my food, I don't live by Nebuchadnezzar's hand. I live by another king. It's my king that feeds me, that has given me everything I need to have food on my table today. And that's a daily reminder, uh, pushing back against the indoctrination of the world. But if the message is just dare to be a Daniel, you know, we may as well stop reading. I mean, if you're here this morning and, and, and you're thinking, you know, Ugh, Daniel had true grit, but what about me? You know, I failed. 
uh, I've compromised. And I'd love to say, I'd love to say in a, a sermon like Daniel, yeah, that's me, and I had the faith of Daniel, but I haven't. Is there any good news for me? There is. Listen, to everybody who's dared to be a Daniel and royally failed, the good news is this. God is not just faithful to those who are faithful to him like Daniel, but he's even faithful to cowardly sinners, weak and lowly. And that's the good news of the gospel. Jesus lived the perfect life we should have lived, and he faced a greater temptation than Daniel and his three friends faced. And he went all the way to the cross to pay for every compromise and every act of uh, cowardice. And every time when we should have resolved in our heart and failed to, he paid for all of that on the cross so that we could be given our true identity, child of God, beloved, forgiven, free, his forever. He gave up his home. He went into exile on the cross so that we could have a forever home. And reminding yourself daily of this gospel, reminding yourself daily of our dependence on God, that will give you each day true grit. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your servant Daniel. We thank you for the courage he showed and for the example he set on how to live in exile in a world that uh, sometimes seems to have lost its mind. Uh, God, grant to us wisdom to know how to live as aliens and strangers, to know how to live in such a way that this world really is not our home, to lay up our treasures beyond the blue and not here. God, grant to us that we could be resolved and purposed in our heart. Grant to us that we could be gracious in our manner. And grant to us that we would have daily dependence on you and that we would pick some discipline by which we might have daily reminder of our utter dependence on you. And thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.